0: Our text this morning is uh, Colossians 3, and I want to encourage you to open up and uh, have that in front of you. And uh, in the Black Pew Bible in front of you, it is uh, page 984, Romans 3. We're going to look at the last half of this. We're we're just making our way through consecutively uh, in this letter that Paul, the apostle, wrote. Um, You're going to hear some things today that uh, very well may uh, offend you, disturb you, uh, leave you with more questions. I, I guarantee it. And so I'm already I'm already blocking out some time this week to have coffee or answer emails or send you articles to read or uh, if you're really upset and you really ha- have a lot going on in your, in your heart and mind then, and maybe we're supposed to have uh, maybe we're supposed to have dinner this week. So just let me know. I, I would I would I would entertain that uh, most definitely. Uh, just as a reminder, as, as we kind of come out of the gates. Um, this is something that I speak to from time to time, and I reminded you last week that you, every last one of you, and by the way, if you do disagree with me, and, uh, and that's okay, uh, I still think you're good. I, still, I think you're above average. You're, you're not, a man, you're not a, uh, an animal. Uh, you are a human being. In fact, all of you, all of us, are human beings, not human doings. We are human beings, not human doings. Not a phrase original to me, but it's important to remember that our dignity, our value, and our worth is not tied to what we do or what we produce. I needed to hear that this morning. I need to believe that this morning. I mentioned last week, it's part of the problem when we develop what I said last week, it's just a Frank Sinatra type theology, doobie dooby doo. Do-be-do-be-do. I even had a a two-year-old singing it over here. Uh, He he remembered it later this week when I saw him. Do-be-do-be-do. That is what part of the problem is, going back to the human doings, not human beings. uh, Excuse me, human beings, not doings. Our being precedes our doing. It ought to be be, be, be-do-be-do-be. In other words, I, we, have dignity, value, and worth made in God's image, and we ought to be loved and cared for and, and pursued because God made us that way. We're supposed to have a relationship with God and other people made in his image. That's different than the rest of creation. And if your life, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, and if you're not, I'm glad you're here. But if you're not yet, if you are a follower of Christ, then let me tell you, your life, as Paul says earlier in this chapter, is hidden in Christ. Your relationship with God is is not tied, same thing, your relationship with God, your standing and position and love in relationship to God is not about what you have done, but who you are in Christ, what He has done. In other words, you do not become an adopted child of God, a son or a daughter, because of things that you have done, but because God has set His love and affection and in Christ has forgiven you What do you have? What do we enjoy being united to Christ? God has our doing, our doings of any variety has been part of the problem. That's what's made it worse in our relationship with God, because we produce sinful and selfish things, the fruit of which, the bad fruit of which is broken relationships. We don't have fellowship with God. By nature, we don't have fellowship with others, truly. We need reconciliation. God has brought redemption and hope. He has brought through Jesus Christ reconciliation. That was through the God-man. God became man, God the Son, in flesh. He didn't lose His divinity while remaining God. And He brings to us His life, forgiveness. And if we follow Him, we enjoy this. We tend to think that our behavior, our achievement, our good works, if we just add that all together, that's the sum of who I am. But the sum of who we are is image bearers. For many of you, it's redeemed. I, I said this week, it was my birthday this past week, so a couple guys, buddies of mine said, how are things going? Well, I'm 46 and I'm still a sinner. And by the grace of God and that alone, I'm, I'm a saint. Maybe someday I'll have a little more on the saint side than the sinner side. But, you know, it's that, that struggle. Our being in Christ precedes our doing. Paul said that earlier in verse 12 of our chapter here. Verse 12 says we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That is our new identity. We are adopted children of God. Now we are going to, Lord willing, with his power, do things that show, that demonstrate that we are his adopted children. I said it already, we don't become adopted children by what we do, but because of what Christ has done. That's all foundational, important stuff when it comes to our calling as Christians to live. The latter half of this chapter, uh, the latter half of this entire letter is focused more on the practical. So we've been talking about the indicative, which is indicating what God has done for us in Christ and who he is in the gospel, the good news, and then the imperative, But it has to be in that order. God, who are you and what do you want me to do? What have you done? Now what do I want to do in response to that? What must I do? There's lots of practical uh, things described here in the Christian life in the latter half. But you don't get it unless you take it truly, unless you take it as a whole. The latter half has been talking, we'll see more and more the practical. Here's a quiz. This is a little bit of an offshoot, so bear with me in introduction here. Charles Schultz. You know who that is? Charles Schultz? The Thank you. Peanuts, the cartoon artist. Very well known and respected. I heard a pastor use a lesson from him. Charles Schultz once asked a group of people, could you please name the five wealthiest people in the world? This is not participatory. Just put it in your mind. Okay, you ready? Okay, here's a few more. Can you name the three, three of the recent Nobel Prize winners in any category? Could you name the Super Bowl MVP for the last four years? Some of you, that's a little bit easier than the Nobel Prize. Okay, I get that. Could you name three people who have won, who have won over the years in history the most Academy Awards? How are you doing? Let's try a different one. Could you name, could you name three teachers over the course of your education who have aided you in your learning? Could you name three people, friends in your life who have walked with you faithfully through very difficult trials? Could you name a handful of people in your extended family who have shaped your life? Who have shaped your life to become who you are in wonderful and beautiful ways today? That one's a little bit easier, isn't it? It's it comes to mind. What's the lesson there? What's the point? The people who have made the biggest difference in your life are not the people who have the credentials and the money and the fame and the celebrity status. They're not the ones who necessarily uh, have it all together, as we might think of, or the most awards, the most important influencers in our life, for the most part, are people who haven't done anything spectacular. They've been sometimes rather subtle and hidden, and they have weaknesses, and we're familiar with those, and they with ours. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning, as we're about to read a a challenging text, is that relationships really do matter. They matter to you. They matter to God. I was recently uh, speaking with a teenager who attends our church. He would like to come to the Lord's table and become a member. And I asked him, I said, well, during that time in the, the service each Lord's Day, where we have a, a silent time of confession and we set aside a moment, what's one of the sins, I know this sounds awkward, but you know me and I, I like awkward. And I, and I put him on the spot. I was bold. I said, tell me, what's one of the sins that you confess during that time to God? Now, I'm not his priest. He can go to Jesus without me, but I just wanted to hear him share it. He goes, you know what? Good question. I think I tend to think about ways that I have hurt other people. Thank you. Thank you, God. That's evidence of someone who understands. It's not, I failed to live up to my potential. I I disappointed myself this week. That's what I confess. No, it's that I hurt people made in God's, image the folks I'm to relate to how I've treated people yes we confess vertically what we have done and failed to do horizontally the deepest truths about our life and our heart and our faith and our convictions are revealed in the context of our closest relationships that's not profound i know that but paul is addressing here what we should gain and can in the context of the people who influence us so often, the church family, which we talked about last week and in previous, and our families, and, of course, the people that we work with closely. Now, just a brief word. We're talking about a subject that is dealing with some of the most precious and intimate relationships in our life. And for some of you, when I start talking about marriage and family and your job and parents and children, it is hard. It brings up grief. It brings up anxieties. It brings up anger and pain. And all of those are probably legitimate for you. Some of you might be inclined to think, even as I read this text, that it's just... It's just irrelevant to me. And I guess I would say, I'm, I, bear with, please. Maybe by God's grace, you'll hear or receive something. Some of you miss your parents. Some of you miss your kids. Some of you love your spouse. Some of you, your spouse walked out. Some of you, your spouse has died. Some of you long to be married. Some of you long to have children. Some of you are lonely. Others wish they could just have some peace and quiet. Some of you have experienced abuse and neglect in the context of what we're about to read. And I don't know what to say except that deeply saddens me. And I think it's near to the heart of God. Some of you have precious memories In the context of family and close relationships, some of you are just trying to survive your family. I don't know. For each of you, I don't know what God has called you to, but I pray that God's spirit will help us as we unpack this text. So once more in deference to God, would you please stand as we read his word? Colossians 3. Beginning with this verse 18, hear this, this is the word of God. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Would you be seated, please, and pray with me? We obviously need it. Father, we ask for your help. Help us to know by the working and the persuasive work, particularly of your spirit, your comfort and your counsel. Help us to learn about the rich inheritance that is ours in Christ, that it might change our minds, our hearts, our priorities. For your sake, help me, Lord, please, to speak well. In Christ's name, amen. Essentially, uh, Paul, I, I know you've got noise. Don't worry, I do too. I mean, I told someone yesterday, I'm usually not nervous preaching, but for some reason I am right now. And, uh... So I I just pray for me. Paul is saying, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our Christian life in, in union with Christ meets the everyday mundane interactions in life. Here's where our Christian faith is put into action. Both in our victories... And in our failings, it's all the more reason why last week it's important, if you go back, please read and understand this in context. Paul is saying we desperately need to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven, God has forgiven us in Christ. There are some things uh, that we can find uncomfortable or confusing here, perhaps. I mean, after all, we're talking about the dynamics of relationships where one has more authority and another has less How can we approach this text? Well, there's any number of ways that we can work through this. I will say from the outset that I'm I'm not going to focus as much. There's there's really three realms. There's marriage, family, and then there's a sense in which this applies to uh, the workplace or the dynamics between those who supervise and and have folks working for them in a modern way to apply that. I'm going to speak more to that probably on Labor Day weekend uh and or 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 maybe at the end of this month and we'll speak to that i'm going to come back around but today i'm speaking more in terms of marriage and the family but i figured the best way to kind of unpack some of this is through these three angles which i'll likely go through not necessarily in order but revisit them and that is their world our world and god's world three different vantage points their world. Let's begin there. We clearly need to understand the context because biblical writers are, are, you know, obviously informed by their context and speaking into a particular uh, culture and group of people. This passage is is very similar. Uh, this is this is not a, a, a newfangled Christian thing per se. There were others uh, philosophers, both uh, Jewish philosophers like Philo, others, uh, uh, you know, other Stoics like Seneca. Uh, Aristotle himself had a household code, a household table by which to speak to these relationships. But in their world, uh, some of this, just if you just were to go back and, and and look at history and literature at their particular time in the Greco-Roman world, women were considered naturally inferior to men. Women... Had, And and that's true of of the nation of of, uh, of the Hebrews at different times, too, because women, their status in the Greco-Roman world as well, the ancient world, women not only didn't have the right to vote, but they couldn't even own property in many contexts. As one writer puts it, they were viewed women as commodities exchanged by marriage and held to a strict moral standard from which their husbands were excused. They were deprived of any form of independence and forbidden to exercise authority or influence of any kind. As the great Roman orator Cicero wrote, our ancestors in their wisdom considered that all women, because of their innate weakness, should be under the control of guardians. Women and servants, slaves, children, were treated as possessions. Children were viewed often as an annoyance, a necessary one, nevertheless, sometimes to keep things going, to serve the cause of the family. If the parallel to this was a pagan message, which it was, if you think that me reading this sounds countercultural, okay, it is, right, to our modern comp, did Pastor just say wives submit? No, Pastor did not say that. Paul said that. God said that. But is it countercultural for us to talk this way? I've done like 50 weddings. Do you know how many times at a reception someone came up to me and said, "I want to I talk to you about one of the verses you read." I didn't pick the passage the bride did. Uh, this is God 's word, Ephesians five. There's other parallel passage here. What I'm trying to say is, if you think this is countercultural today, it was then too. but for a totally different reason, hear me out on this one. because if there was a parallel to that world, it would have said something very different. Something to the tune of wives, submit to your husbands and husbands, make sure that you rule over them and keep them that way. It would have said children, obey your parents and fathers, make sure that your children obey you. It would have said servants, obey your masters and make make sure, masters, you too don't give any opportunity to do otherwise. So contrast that now with Paul's instruction to Christians That is based in Christ and it emphasizes reciprocity and it's it's built around it's rooted in equality which is what the Bible says of all human beings Paul believes that we are all under the lordship of Christ and there is no division he said that earlier it's no division between who is considered valuable and invaluable we have equal dignity Yes, there are differences. Some of those are extremely apparent and obvious, but they are designed by God as complementary. Another note, just with respect to the practice of slavery in that day, in that context, the practice, sadly enough, that's gone on through the history of all human civilization. Some would argue, even in some aspects, a, a necessary one. At times, it was because of war. It had nothing to do, at times, with race or ethnicity, it had to do with economics and and war and other things. A society that would run based off of people who because of their indebtedness had to become indentured or had to become bonded servants. To they could still be they could be more intelligent than their masters. They could be more skilled than their masters. But because of debts or other things, they would succumb. They would submit to this institution where their freedom is taken away and they, they can eventually maybe gain possessions and buy back their freedom and liberty, their emancipation. There's lots of factors and facets to slavery in the ancient context. It's, very, it's, it's likely different than what we understand. That's a whole other subject. Maybe that's why we need to have dinner this week. Paul, though, does not tell the servants here to start a rebellion. I think there's, there's maybe a, a variety of reasons, I presume, but there is at least one of them that is to show and demonstrate that the gospel works and the gospel is to be applied to our lives in the best of times and in the worst of times. In fact, Paul wrote this letter. Remember, he's in prison himself, so, I mean, he, he, he's got to submit to a whole other dynamic. And then he writes this letter and he sends it on back to the people in Colossae by way of Anisimus, and Anisimus, uh, who, ironically, there's there's actually a, a there's a historic uh, African American slave. If you go look, his, his name was Anisimus, and he was part of of, uh, of medicine in, in early uh, part of Boston. But th- this is a this is Anisimus and Colossi. He ran away from his master. He was converted to Jesus, and Paul says, "You got to go back to your master." And his name is Philemon, and I've got a letter. Take it to him. I've got a letter to all the people. This was read at Philemon's house, presumably, in the context of that church. Onesimus goes back, and he's restored, and then he has a separate letter that he wrote to Philemon about how they should be restored and reconciled. Interesting. Many struggle with what to do with this. I get it, especially when we look at it through the concept of our modern-day lens. But the idea that Christianity, in some way, the Christian ethic spelled out like it is here, is regressive and oppressive and misogynistic. How do I say this humbly? It's a mistake. The testimony of the whole of Scripture and frankly the evidence of the early church speaks very differently because where Christianity was and is the leading advocate for human equality and dignity of persons, marriage... And the Christian view is not about ownership, but partnership. And, and the positive effects that Christianity, when it has taken root in a culture and a society by way of Holy Spirit revival and renewal and church planting and lives touched by Jesus, means that children and women gain status. They gain rights. There's health, there's better workplace relationships and dynamics. There's so many ways that you could point to how the the love of Christ in people's hearts changed their view of others and their relationship to them. That's a little bit about their world and now a little bit about our world. And please hear me, I'm not here to promote traditional views or values. It's not about tradition. Obviously, tradition has changed. In the ancient world, it was a tradition I don't want to go back to. I don't think you do either. At all. But it's the covenantal view. It's the scriptural view that God has laid forth. Yes, we can and should celebrate civil rights, the advancement of women's rights, the protection of the most vulnerable, our children. But our progressive culture is now deeply confused, even while trying to champion the cause of the marginalized. And yet, under the banner of political correctness, we can't even embrace what is a beautiful, necessary thing by God's design called marriage and family the essential building block of any historic, healthy society. Instead, in the West, people get married less and less. We're afraid to call men leaders. Nobody wants to follow anyone. Everyone wants to be autonomous. Men, women, children, They want to be independent. They want to express themselves. There's no husband-wife oneness. It's all confused. What's the fruit? We see children who are idolized and worshipped to the detriment of marriages. In the workplace, we see there's alienation and abuse. In marriages, we see that there's disintegration and divorce. The ripple effects, we don't even want to, I mean, we do shudder to contemplate. We don't want to contemplate. And yet, I don't want to rage and argue and, and engage in any kind of cultural war surrounding that. I want us to be humble followers of Jesus who love in a world that's... and and, and step forth in our, our duty to to forgive and to speak of the love and forgiveness that we've been liberated by in Christ. I don't need to, to rage. I, I just need to wake up tomorrow morning and, and, and clean the drain and the... the, the Shower and pay my bills and love my children and lead my wife. That's a pretty hard to do list. I mean, come on, right? You know, I mean, do you think about that? It's it's challenging. There's clarity here. There's hope here. There's certainly clarity here about how to have a Christian household... And how to live as followers since the gospel is, is applied. But Paul here is really just giving an ever so brief synopsis. You can say it's an oversimplification. It's a summary. There's so much more that can be said about how marriage and family and the workplace could flourish. He's just giving at a bare minimum. What is that bare minimum? Yes, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is not a commentary, again, on, on value, dignity, worth at all. Yet by God's design... For the sake of order, responsibility, and authority has been given to husbands. To husbands. I'm not saying that men have authority over women. Just carte blanche. Just doesn't even matter. This is in the context of marriage. Don't take it out of context. A husband has responsibility and authority to lead. And if you look at other passages, there's careful speak about that in Ephesians 5 and places like 1 Peter 3. You see it even clearer. It's that people, including Christians, sadly enough, have at times taken out of context or confused and manipulated for the sake of their own purposes, their selfish purposes. I've seen it. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen men who blame their marriages and, and the, the sorrows of it, and they just put it all at their wife's feet. It saddens me. I've seen spouses do all kinds of things. This month marks 20 years of marriage that I've had To Christo. I know the ethics of this. I know the deep challenges. I know the pain of the effects of the fall that we heard read about in Genesis 3 when our parents rebelled against God. A husband should be loving, a husband should be a courageous servant leader a servant leader he should not be derelict in his duties like adam was wives now have to also live under the curse where their desire like we heard read in genesis three sixteen, is for their husband who rules over them and sadly enough i had a painful flashback to some point in grade school and in, in, in sunday school when i heard this passage read and i looked at this one girl anna who i didn't like and i said Take that, <laughs> which clearly shows I was so ill-prepared to be a husband, let alone be a follower of Jesus. I, I need to repent. I totally didn't understand. Anna is married, ironically, to a pastor. <laughs> and he is a wonderful, godly man. There are times when we are tempted. There's times that you, wives, are tempted to usurp and challenge your husband disrespectfully. You want to lord over your husband, and yet, don't we all? To a person. We want to be Lord. And the husband should not be a blame shifter like Adam was. Remember, we heard it read when God says, What's going on? What's happened? Well, I'm ashamed. What's up, Adam? Oh, well, it's the woman. Blame shifter. It's the woman, but it's worse. Did you hear it read? It's the woman that you gave me. 20 years of marriage. Submit has never been part of the vocabulary. It didn't need to be by the grace of God. My wife has deferred to me in leadership. I value her input, her wisdom, and desire some of the time to follow that, to heed that, to take that in. She deserves the credit. With God's help under the banner of love, I as a Christian husband need to lead And in the end, when things go bad, I take the blame. You husbands take the blame. And if things go well, and it was your wife's idea, then she gets the credit. Christian men, we get to love our wives. Elsewhere in Ephesians 5, though. It's a hard job because it's as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the parallel passage to this that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. But that privilege and that duty by way of love is both an affection and an action. And at the very least, Paul is saying you should love and not be harsh with your wives. In other words, you should not be embittering them or tempting them to be embittered. But that harshness would obviously involve any and all forms of violence. But on top of that, other forms of selfish action that are, are, are abusive. And I'm sad to say it still happens way too often. Even in a society that believes in, rightly so, the equal quality of men and women. So much more could be said here. But let's talk about another group. Let's talk about children, verse 20. Children, young people, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. To be clear, young people, if your parents are, are asking you to violate your conscience or God's law, you are not called to submit to them, because ultimately it's your submission unto the Lord whom you seek to please. So there are times, obviously, that this would not uh, apply. But to the degree to which, even if you don't understand or trust them, you are called to follow your parents. They have a higher authority. The higher authority for you is to please God as is for them. So as much as they are, of course, submitted unto Christ, then that would be an invitation for you to do the same. And yet, in many ways, again, we are tempted to selfishly serve our own interests. Young people how can I say this? Uh, do you love and want to please God who made you? Then honor and respect your parents. It, it's a beautiful testimony when I see young people against, swimming against the tide, right? That they would distinguish themselves by how they just simply speak of and to their parents. It's a beautiful testimony of a life redeemed that they can do that, even when they're, they're friends, the, the peer pressure is going in a different direction altogether. I can't tell you how many young people, some of you know who you are because I've talked to you. I've looked straight in your eyes and I've said to you, you should thank God for your parents. You have good parents. They're not perfect. You, you and I both know that. Um, you more than me. Um, but I'm telling you, Someday you will thank God for them. I truly believe that. Verse 21, to fathers I will read this again. Paul says, do not provoke your children. Or other translations say, exasperate them. How does this happen? How do we see that negatively manifest? Well, there's a a long list of things that could be on that list. and, And maybe you should ask my teenage children. Uh, They're they're all three away at an FCA camp. So uh, maybe that's just God's providence. And we landed on that text today and they didn't happen to be here. And that's kind of good because it's awkward for me to talk about it. It's awkward for them to have to hear it. Sorry, Krista. Uh, You did try to sign up for nursery this morning, didn't you? I'm just kidding. One of the ways that fathers can provoke their children, and I was considered to... I was challenged to consider it this week in my studies is expecting from our children what makes us proud of ourselves. Well, you know, back in my day, I, I, I have failed in this regard. Or here I heard even one Christian father say it's demanding a level of commitment and holiness that you never demand of yourself. That's a way to exhaust and provoke your children. They smell, they sense, they read, they understand, they discern hypocrisy. Christian men, we need to be a leader, but that only starts in submission to Christ. Christian husbands need to take initiative. Let's be the leaders, not the problems in our home. Please, and in our marriages, and to the extent and the times that we, if, not not if, but when we fail, we're the first to lead out with, I was wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me, pray for me, I need help. Phrases like that. Paul is advocating for surrender and submission for everyone involved here. Selfless Selfishness hurts people. Selfishness hurts ourselves. The wisdom of Proverbs. Here you go. Proverbs 11. A man who is kind, that's the antithesis of harsh, right? That he said you should not do. Husbands. Proverbs eleven seventeen: A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Well, let's just consider God's angle on this a little bit, right? Because if you think about it, if you look at this text, and I said, I know I'm going to deal with bond servants and masters uh, uh, at a later week and talk about the Christian ethic with work uh, later this month. But for right now, if you think about the six parties or persons that are listed in this passage, there's six of them, right? Which one has the main reference point? Well, it's not the person who has any degree of of power and authority as a human. Rather, the main focal point here is our maker. Our redeemer. Because again and again, it's, it's in the context, you go back to verse 17. Because there Paul says, before he says anything about husbands, wives, children, and masters, he says in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father. So, That's for all of us. But then when every every party is named, what's the reference point? Wives submit if your husband No, no. Husbands love if your wife No. Children obey if no. The reference point, the, the focus is the Lord. It's God. So look at it again for here from from that perspective. Follow me. This is husbands could say, follow me as I follow Christ with love and kindness. Great. But then verse 18, wives submit as is fitting in the Lord. Children, you do this. What? Out of a desire to prosper yourself. Well, yeah, that would be true. And in keeping with the fifth commandment. Honor your father, mother, that it may go well with you. But the, the point here is look at the verse 20. Look at it. Children do this. What? Out of a desire to please the Lord, verse 23, as we work, it is unto the Lord, not for selfish gain or praise. Masters, why should you do what you do? Because your Lord? No, because you have a master who is in heaven. That's the beginning of chapter 4. In Ephesians 5, like I mentioned, that's the longest passage on marriage that parallels this. Verse 21 says to husbands and wife both. Submit to one another. You, as all of you as Christians, male, female, husbands, wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to give instructions similar to this. If you have a struggle this morning with submission, I'm not looking, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. If you have a struggle with the concept and the notion of submission, I want to encourage you this morning. You are not alone. Okay? It's it is very natural for us to chafe at that concept. But I don't say you're alone because there's loads and loads of people that would love to sit around and complain and bicker and be bitter together and talk about how much how how much bitterness they have towards their spouse or how much they can't stand their parents or their supervisor or boss. But I'm saying, no, rather, you are not alone because our Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what you are experiencing Philippians 2 will tell you so clearly how Christ Jesus, though he had equality with God, something to be grasped, became a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for you and for me, because he knew we would screw up in this. He knew we would not want to submit to God. He knew we wouldn't want to submit to our parents It is possible. Let me put it in the form of a question. I'm getting close to the end. Here's your last question. Not a quiz. Please tell me. I don't know about the Academy Award winners, but here's another quiz for you. Are you ready? In closing Is it possible to submit to someone and still have dignity, value, worth, and equality? Is that possible? Absolutely. And if you want an example of that, let's look together at Jesus Christ. Jesus, so clearly, our Lord, eternally existed as the Son of God. He is fully divine. Paul already said that earlier. And yet he submitted his whole life. And yet he was not in any way inferior or less than God at any point. And yet willfully, volitionally, Jesus took a lower position to become obedient to the will of God the Father in the name of love. And I'm telling you, I am so grateful that here in a moment I get to take in my hands. And you and me together get to receive in our mouths the very emblems and the symbol of the body and blood of Jesus, because, and expressly because, He submitted. That He honored His Father. That He did the work that we couldn't do to repair our relationship with God or one another. It's the very reason that we should come and we contemplate in our temptations and in the noise of our guilt and shame. And we all have it. In our frailties and our failures in the context of our home life. with the people that we, we love the dearest. And yet we need strength and we need grace. We need to commune with God. We need him to meet us here. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, will you please repent and surrender to Jesus Christ as the Lord and King of your life? And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, Jesus died for all of your failures and all all of your weaknesses. He gave His body and blood for you and for me that we might have hope and reconciliation and change. Would you pray with me? Father, You've called us out of darkness into light. We know that you've also called us together as a church, a community. Would you please be with us in our relationships? Would you please help people this morning? who, Because of things that were said and just the topic alone, it just brings pain and grief and noise. I, I, in ways that are unique to you, Lord, would you please comfort Prince of Peace? Send your spirit to minister to them, to help them. For where there's confusion, I pray there would be clarity. Where, where there's restlessness, I pray there would be peace. I, I pray where there's, 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 there's discord and disharmony and brokenness in marriages, I pray you'd bring healing. Where there's children that do feel embittered, I pray that there would be confession and healing and joy that comes through repentance. Give us courage, Lord. I, I pray you'd give us boldness to take hard steps and to to, to set up... Important conversations. Forgive us, restore us, strengthen us. Redeem broken things, fractured a relationship. Give us all soft hearts, every person here. Give us boldness and humility to live out the gospel daily with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, I do pray as we even move towards the fall that you would be with those who are are making big steps and huge transitions. Even this morning, I think of those who are, are, are heading out to uh, the new chapter, a new, new state. Even this morning, I'm reminded, it's like, I think of Malachi as he heads off to college soon, that you would, this week, I believe, that you would go with him ahead of him, that you would prepare for him, friends, opportunities to love you, know you, serve you, grow, flourish, to please you, God. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name. And as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we pray together saying, Our Father.